Try again. Hey, 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 welcome, welcome, welcome. Kind of delay and start. Welcome to the show. Wow, Thanksgiving already. I hope you guys are busy cooking tonight because tomorrow's the big day. Turkeys, family, all kinds of food, st stuff in our faces and all that good stuff. I know I'm defrosting my turkey. I've been defrosting for about three, three days. I'm probably going to end up doing the method in the in the bathtub, in the water thing, because I ended up doing that last year to get my turkey done. But anyway, uh, welcome to the show. we got a great show for you tonight. Um, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour or so. And uh, I am the owner and operator of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. And we are 35 strong. Let me stop fumbling with the mic. Uh, we're 35 strong. And we are up and down. We are located up and down the state of California, um, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, and some parts of Hawaii. And I just hit the wrong button. See, I'm going to have button issues today. You can just tell it's going to be a button kind of day. Um. Welcome again. Um, the lady we have on, the lady we have coming on tonight, um, I find her book really fascinating because growing up, um, I've I've known people that have had mental problems and have been in institutions, but they're nothing. The institutions of today are nothing like the institutions of what they had many many years ago. Good example of that is <laughs> one that reminds me is this movie my dad used to make me watch. Well, not make me watch, but we used to watch together called. The Snake Pit. And, um, wow, this just incredible movie. Or, you know, when you think about this stuff, you think One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that, you know, for the more modern movies about these places. And even even Ratcheted, right? The new TV, that, that series on, on Netflix, right, Ratcheted. But um, Stacy Horn has done research into a facility that, uh, that was located in, in the New York area. And um, what she has to say in her book is fascinating. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and bring her up. So we can get going here. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Um, it's a day off for me, so happy to be hanging around at home. That works. How's your turkey going? Uh, I'm vegetarian, no turkey. Oh, okay. <laughs> that works. That works, too. I remember one year I... um. My my dad wasn't a fish person, and I remember one year my a friend of mine caught a bunch of trout, and I'm not a turkey person, and so I remember my mother didn't quite know how to make the trout, and when she cooked it, she cooked it with the eyeballs and everything in there, and so I'm sitting next to my father when when I brought it to the table, <laughs> he about had a stroke, you know, over this trout. So yeah. So that's one of my fondest memories. In fact, that's a big joke in the family is, is, is the whole trout story, you know, the, the whole trout mystery story of why I would bring a trout to the Thanksgiving I would, table. I would have screamed. You know? <laughs> you know? Well, it's just like, you know, a Christmas story when, when they bring out the Peking duck, and, and what does he say? He says, it's still staring at me. And I think that's what my dad was like. The trout was staring back at him. You know? Welcome to the show. And I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. Um, I heard you on, on on the other show talking about it, so that, that's what made me so excited. Tell me a little bit about you and how you got into being a writer. Well, I've wanted to be a writer since I was nine years old, and for some reason I didn't pursue it um, for a long time, I guess thinking making a living as a writer was a long shot, so I did other things. Mm -hmm. Um the, the big the biggest thing I did was I started a very early um, online community or social network called Echo. And this I started in 1989. 
And I got a lot of attention at the time because the internet was very new and it was mostly men um, who were who were starting new companies and getting all the attention. So I was a novelty being female. Mm-hmm. So at one point at the New York Times was interviewing me and I can't even remember what question they asked me, but I said, well, I really want to be a writer. And I said, I've got an unpublished novel sitting in my desk drawer like every other wannabe writer. And I got a call from a publisher the very next day saying that they would publish my novel, which didn't end up happening, but they did um, publish another book that I had written and I've been writing books ever since. Fantastic. See, I've got a couple waiting in the in the wings too. But being a journalist and all, you know, between doing this and, and doing my freelance writing, I don't have time to really finish. You know, it's like I'm about three chapters away on on both books and finishing and then you know, it's just not the time to sit down and do it. So maybe over over this holiday coming up I'll be able to, you know, do that. I'm writing excited. articles I think is a lot harder than writing books. In a lot of ways it is, yeah, because, you know, what makes it hard for me is that um, as a journalist, you're, you're trained to write smaller paragraphs. Mm-hmm. And so when I have to write a book, it makes me, it makes me crazy <laughs> because you have to, you have to write those big old paragraphs, you know, and it, dry, it drives me nuts because I feel like I've got a bunch of run on things going on, you know. Yeah. So it's a huge, it's a huge adapt for me. Tell me about your interest in this um, asylum. How did you get into looking into that? Well, most of my books um, have a morbid subject or there's something morbid about them. Um, For whatever reason, I've always been attracted to these sad, forgotten stories that I come across. And I actually had proposed a a different book to my publisher. There's a place where I, I, my favorite thing is research. I love doing research. And one of my favorite places to do research is at the Municipal Archives in New York. That's where Mm -hmm. the city stores a lot of their records. And so I I wrote a proposal based on the various kind of um, collections they have there. And I had a short bit um, about Blackwell's Island. And Blackwell's Island was the name in the 19th century for the island now known as Roosevelt Island. Okay. If you're not a New Yorker, that's an island in the East River alongside Manhattan. And so that small bit about Blackwell's Island was the favorite part for the, my publisher who were, was considering this proposal. And so they said, well, instead of writing about the municipal archives, why don't you write a book about Blackwell's Island? And he went, I would love to write a book about Blackwell's Island. And so that's how I came to write this book. But I didn't know very much about it when I that that day when I said yes I'd love to write a book and it was only later that I learned um just quick backstory for people who haven't Mm -hmm. read the book um in the 19th century um most of the care for the city's poor um who were suffering from illnesses um from mental illnesses who had been convicted of crime were all um, taken care of at Bellevue, which is now known primarily as a public hospital. But at the time, it also, um, in that complex, had the city's workhouse, which was a jail for people convicted of minor crimes. 
the city's penitentiary, which was the uh, prison for people convicted of felonies, um, the what was then called the lunatic asylum, and the almshouse. That was where people who were older and poor and had no means to support themselves, that's where they would go to live. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to turn that off. Okay, that does it. Sorry about that. That's okay. So because they were t taking care of all these different inst institutions and they were all in this one area on, on the east side of New York, it, everything was way overcrowded and, and inhumane. And to the city's credit, they recognized that. And so they came up with this plan that they would buy Blackwell's Island, which was um, owned by one family. Um, and they would rebuild um, replacement institutions and they would rebuild them um, to be much better, more humane, state of the art. So their intentions were good. They were going to improve these terrible conditions and build a better lunatic asylum and a better mm -hmm. house and so forth. But it all went south almost immediately. Um. How long did it take them to build this other facility then, you know, to, to, to do that? Because obviously, the, the, uh, excuse me, obviously, <laughs> obviously that the, they had the other place, but, you know, after they were building this other one, how, how long did it take to put a facility like that together? Well, just roughly, the, the, they built the penitentiary first, and mm -hmm. the penitentiary was built by the prisoners themselves, and then um, from there, they built... Oh God, what was the order? The Lunatic Asylum and the almshouse, a hospital for the poor, and then the workhouse. I think I've got the order correct, but I think it only took a year or two for each institution to be built. There was Everything was built by um, granite that was in quarry from Roosevelt Island. So is this supposed to be a state-of-the-art place, obviously, Yeah, you know, for, for that time? Yeah, and they did their homework. They researched other institutions. Um, specifically the lunatic asylum, um, the care of people suffering from mental illness was was pretty horrendous in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But there was a new um, thinking. Oh, my God, my mind just blinked on, blanked on what they <laughs> called okay. it. But it's it was okay. a new way of treating um, people suffering from mental illness instead of throwing them in jail or in locking them in their rooms. Um, let's treat them with kindness and humanity. And so mm -hmm. the idea was lunatic asylums. And I'm calling, I'm sorry for calling them lunatic asylums, but that's what sure. they're called in the 19th century. So the idea was they would be more humane. Um, uh, instead of having lots of people in one room, they'd have one room um, that with comfy bed, clean clothes, they'd feed them good food. Um, they wouldn't treat it like a prison and they would mm -hmm. have entertainment and, and, occupations for them so they weren't just sitting around stewing with whatever problem they were dealing with hmm. um but almost from the beginning they they made that kind of ideal almost impossible um they just made what i identified as four very big <laughs> errors <laughs> One was they underestimated um, the number of people that they would have to care for. Uh, two, and this is probably the most important one, they 
very greatly underestimated the cost. It's extremely expensive, even now, to do any of these things right. Running a, 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 a very well-cared-for um, institution for people suffering from mental illness to do it right costs a lot of money. Um, another big problem was um, all these institutions were run um, by commissioners and the number of commissioners changed over the year, but it was mostly three commissioners who were political appointees and they weren't chosen based on any expertise they had in these areas. And lastly, um, and, and this is also a very terrible mistake they made, was they took all these people and then put them on an island away from everyone else. These three mm -hmm. groups that really have nothing to do with each other. Um, poor people who are sick, poor people who are suffering from illnesses, and poor people who are convicted of crimes. And the reason why I emphasize poor is because wealthy people, if they were sick, went to private hospitals. If they were suffering from um, mental illness, they went to private asylums and if they mm -hmm. were criminals they almost never went to jail <laughs> so we're talking about poor people and having them all together on this one island and away from everyone else and also um run by one group of people and not separate groups um created this association in people's minds that probably always existed, but it really emphasized and amplified the idea that these two, these two groups of people, people who are sick, people who are suffering from mental illness, and people convicted mm -hmm. of crimes were all basically the same, roughly, that um, mental mentally ill people are dangerous and mm -hmm. poor people are essentially thieves in disguise. And that association, this idea of criminal, this practice of criminalizing the poor has consisted, persisted to this day. Wow. Had they, at that point, had they started any kind of electric shock, uh, shock treatment on anybody yet? No. Because okay. electricity was not a thing. Um, yeah, okay. I was thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, by the way, that reminds me, I, there's this show that I love on TV. Uh, I can't, it's one of these renovation shows, but mm -hmm. it's about um, historical um, buildings. Okay, now I can't remember what it was called, but it, they're they're focusing on buildings um, that were built in the Revolutionary War era. And oh, that's cool. Pictures of the owners of these buildings. I go, that's not possible. <laughs> they they couldn't have pictures of the people who built these buildings because we didn't have cameras in the 18th right. century. That's fascinating. I gotta check that show out. So I gotta figure out the name of that. Oh, it's wonderful. I'd it's, be interested in that one. History's in it's aside from that little quibble of mine. It's, right, it's right. Wonderful. It's a wonderful right. Show. Absolutely, I want to have to check that out. So, what types of treatments did they get? Did they have to undertake then at, at, at this asylum? There really wasn't any real treatments. Um, the plan was when someone got committed, um, they would. They, would, they came across by ferry across the East River from Manhattan to the island, and they were supposed to have a doctor and a nurse um, go through this admission process. They'd go over the paperwork to see why they were admitted, what were they suffering from. They were supposed to get a, you know, a warm bath, clean clothes, and a nice room. Um, mm -hmm. But because um, 
they things had fallen apart so quickly um that they when they were checked in it was very perfunctory they didn't really learn much in fact when there was a senate investigation in 1880 one of the doctors testified that when he went through all the records i forget mm -hmm. the number but he found like a large number of people that were um, committed to the asylum they had no records of when they had come who had committed them or why they just knew nothing about them and they just kept them there so um so they didn't get really much of a, an intake when they got there they the clean clothes were frequently worse than the clothes that they came with mm -hmm. and they weren't very clean and the warm bath was probably the most horrifying of all like i spent uh, a good section of the book describing that bath just because i thought it was so horrible and it was really torture and if I described it quickly, I don't think people really understood just how bad it was. But because this was in you know, the 19th century, mm -hmm. heating water and getting clean water was not an easy thing to do. They had very little plumbing. Um, so the wardens decided that instead of, you know, refilling the baths every time an inmate took a bath, they would fill them up in the morning and that would be it for the day. So person after, person after person after person would get in the same bath water. And... Ew. But it's worse than you even think. I found, oh, I God. looked, I looked, and I fi finally found someone who described exactly what it was like, who had experienced it. And she said that by the time she got into the bath, it was m more like sludge than water. Oh, oh. And there were things moving in it, like bugs, lice, whatever. And so think that think of how horrible that would be for you to have to step into that now imagine you're dealing with some sort of mental illness you're going through whatever depression schizophrenia something and you're being told to step into this and if you resist oh yeah this is another thing to save money what they did um was instead of um hiring nurses or people with any kind of training or just normal citizens at all to work as nurses and attendants they would use people who had been convicted of crimes and sentenced to Blackwell Island as a workhouse. So they had prisoners acting as nurses and attendants. So if you didn't get into that water, if you resisted, then one of these in convicts would be forcing you into that water. And I found stories of people who died as a result of being forced into the water. That's, that's crazy. I was going to say that's insane, but... Excuse the so, pun on that. So, the, so they were wow. supposed to have, you know, days filled with activities. You know? Right. I I forget. Like they would do sewing, painting, music, and there's and they would occasionally have people come from Manhattan to entertain the musicians. Mm -hmm. um, but that would rarely happen, though they were put to work. Um, but for the most part, um, since they didn't have a lot of people to control them and take care of them. Um, they would put them in restraints. So you know, they'd be strapped into chairs, strapped into mm -hmm. straight jackets, and then just left in these chairs or wherever all day long. So you would wake up, get strapped in, and that was it. There was this show on TV, um, The Alienist, I believe it was, mm -hmm. where they had a scene where one of the characters from the show visits the lunatic asylum at Blackwell's Island. And I... It was so well done. Like whoever 
wrote that scene, did their research because they had the character, um, it was a nurse, walked down this long hallway. And as she walked down, she passed, you know, inmate after inmate after, well, she didn't be saying inmate, patient, but they were mm-hmm. treated like inmates. Right. Um, strapped to chairs all the way down the hallway wow. and, and they were peeing themselves because no nobody would like unstrap them so they could go to the bathroom and the bathrooms were horror stories anyway. Um, and they were crying for help and I thought that was probably exactly what it was like. How many, I mean, how many patients were there? Um, oh God, I, I don't have it in front of me. Um, I have a, I can look, but I have a chart of it, but it'll take me a second to open the program. I would, I'd be guessing right now, but I think it would be any, a thousand at a time. Wow. And that was another thing. Like they had an architect design the lunatic asylum and it was going to be this like square um, with four hallways um, meeting at four octagons. Mm-hmm. So forming a square. And so they only ended up ending, ended up building two wings. So it was just an L shaped two wings with one octagon. And so on the first day when they moved everyone from Bellevue to the lunatic asylum, they already reached their max capacity for that building. So that had to quit build these other buildings, which were essentially just wooden shacks along the beach. Mm-hmm. And they had lovely names like the Madhouse. Nice. I mean, I could tell you horror story after horror story. It had to be cold. I mean, it's, it's, it's not warm in New York in the winter. So it, it had to be cold for them. It was cold. It was very cold. That was one of some of the saddest stories I, I read were just, you know, it was very hard to find information, you know, direct information. Right. But I would find these remnants of people just describing begging for a blanket and, or, and not being able to get a blanket. Or when they checked in, they would have a decent warm coat, but this would be taken away from them and replaced with something thinner um, and not at all protective against the cold. And did the family members, were they allowed to visit at all? They were allowed to visit, um, but it wasn't easy. Um, and especially if you're poor, it was, it was difficult to take time off work to visit. Um, so, I mean, that contributed to the problem that it wasn't easy to visit. Um, they were kind of out of sight for the rest of, um, humanity. So there was nobody seeing on a daily basis what was happening, um, to them, to advocate to them, advocate for them. Mm -hmm. In fact, I did the, the main character, um, of that section of my book was this priest that I um, finally came across, um, William uh, French, who was an Episcopal priest assigned to this island. And he wrote annual reports of his work. Uh, and he, I actually copied him in the structure of my book, um, how he structured his annual reports. He would mm-hmm. go, you know, he'd take the ferry across and then just walk the length of the island going from building to building to building to administer um, to uh, the patients in each building. And so he he would write it in the order of when he came across the building. So that's yeah. what I did in my book. I wrote, you know, Lunatic Island, uh, Lunatic Asylum first, and then from building to building, I described what it was like based on the walk that he took every day. But he, he was a compassionate man, and mm-hmm. he was 
very blunt in the descriptions of what it was like. I mean, heartbreaking descriptions of what it was like. Uh, I mean, there's a million quotes in the books, but he basically called it a daily tragedy. About 30 to 50,000 people would be sent there every year. Right. A thousand of them would die every year. And the lunatic asylum was uh, had some of the highest mortality rates uh, every year, which is kind of shocking when you consider there was a hospital there <laughs> and they're dying at a greater rate than people sent to the hospital. That wasn't true every year, but many years it was. How many um, psychologists were on staff to take care of these people? Um, well, they weren't called psychologists. They were called oh. alienists and they didn't really okay. have the training. And the people that were sent to Blackwell's Island to work were for the most part, um, medical students who um, were either in their last year or who had just graduated. So they had almost no experience. They had zero experience dealing with the mentally ill. And they were not up to the task. And I found, I, I wrote about this one story of a, uh, there was unfortunately a number of murders that took place in the lunatic asylum. Patients were murdered by nurses, attendants, each other. And I found this one story. Uh, so in, in the lunatic asylum at night, uh, there would be one nurse who was be helped by three attendants. And these the nurse might be a, a real nurse. And by the way, nursing in and of itself was very new in the 19th century. Um, and she'd be helped by three convicts from the work uh, workhouse. And by the way, I don't mean to represent people convicted of crimes as terrible people without compassion. That, that right. wasn't necessarily the case. But they certainly weren't trained um, with how to deal with people suffering from mental illness. And they mm -hmm. certainly weren't encouraged to, to behave any way other than abusive. Uh, so, so this one nurse showed up for work one night. She only had the three convicts to help her and she heard this pounding in one of the rooms and she went in and I believe there were four people in the room. And by the way, this is how it worked. The, at night after dinner, they would be sent to their rooms, locked in, and they wouldn't be able to get unlocked and the room wouldn't be unlocked and they wouldn't be able to leave until the next morning. So once they were locked in for the night, that was it. So she went to the room, unlocked the door, and one patient was in the process of murdering another using um, this uh, wooden uh, container that was used as a chamber pot. And she was bashing in the head of one other um, inmate. And the two other women in the room were trying to stay as far away from this as possible, but the rooms were, I think they were 10 feet by eight feet. So they could only get 10 feet away from this woman murdering this other woman. So she closed the door, called the doctor. Um, and by the time he came, um, the woman was unconscious. And so he, he put a bandage around her head and left. And the nurse said, the woman, she's got to go to the hospital. She's seriously wounded. And the doctor refused and she begged him. She said, look, please transfer this woman to the hospital. And he, he refused. And he was like 21, 21, 22 years old. He's just a kid. <laughs> and the woman died um, a, an hour or so later. And word got out, and there was an inquest. And 
this um, grand jury fortunately did see, ex understood exactly what had taken place. And so they censured the, the commissioners who ran the hospital. They censured the doctor. They censured all these people saying, I can't believe you're running the place like this. And this young student is in, in, responsible for all these patients and, he, and he's just a kid. But, and so the response from, from the commissioners, and, and I, I, I forgot to mention the, 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 all these institutions on Blackwell's Island were run by one department and that department was called the Department of Public Charities and Correction. So <laughs> the, the, so again, these charitable institutions and these prison institutions were all under one department. So the commissioners that run, ran this one department, you know, they read this report and their response was to fire the nurse. They didn't change anything. They didn't do anything. They said that patient died because of gross negligence on the part of the nurse. Whoa. I know. It's like... <laughs> Did they ever? I mean, like, like nowadays, you get the commissioners or whoever's on, on the board of the hot regions of the hospitals, they'll tour the facility. Did, did they ever do that back then? They did tour the facility, but as you suspect, probably similar things happen today whenever a facility mm -hmm. that's not very well run um, gives a tour. Um, they cleaned it up. And right threatened the patients um, that if they said anything, you know, we will retaliate when these people leave, which they did. Mm -hmm. um, but even if they had, like, like there was another investigation, a big investigation that I wrote about. Um, I think it was, um, oh, I'll never remember the year correctly, but towards the end of the 19th century, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and people were dying at alarming rates um, in alarming ways. There was one um, death that I wrote about where a pregnant inmate um, who was in a straitjacket was thrown into solitary one night. Now, just the idea that um, an institution that um, was built to help people with mental illness mm -hmm. had something called, had solitary confinement. That was something they did. It was shocking to me. So they threw her into solitary, didn't take her out of the straitjacket, and she was pregnant. So she gave birth that night in solitary, alone, Yikes. in a straitjacket. So that story got out, along with many others that were, that were horrifying as well. And so there was a big Senate investigation. And it was big, and it went on for a long time. And I, um, it was like 900 pages of records for that. And I read through them all and they, they interviewed hundreds of people and they, they worked hard. But what was shocking to me was of all the people that they spoke to, doctors, attendants, mm -hmm. nurses, visitors, they didn't talk to one single patient that was there. Um, uh, the, the priest that I spoke about, William French, um, fortunately got up there and told the truth about just how bad it was. And he talked about how the nurses and attendants could do anything they could wanted. They could abuse the patients. They could murder the patients. And nothing ever happened because nobody ever believed the patients. Mm -hmm. So nothing changed. I mean, everyone knows the story of Nellie Bly, or, or a lot of people know the story of Nellie Bly. She was a reporter. 
who pretended that she was suffering from mental illness in order to be committed to the lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island so that she could write about what it was like. So she did successfully get herself committed and she wrote a series of articles that were eventually put together in a book, into a book called 10 Days in the Madhouse. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful book. I mean, not wonderful, but it, I mean, she, unlike myself writing about it, she was mm-hmm. in there. She wrote from the inside. And there was a huge uproar when um, her articles were published and everyone was up in arms. We have to fix this. We have to do something about it. Um, and so the main thing that she speaks about in the end of her book um, was that she got the budget for the lunatic asylum um, raised the next year. They got a lot more money. Well, they got a, some more, some money. Mm-hmm. Some money. That sentence didn't come out right. They got more money <laughs> than they usually got. But I was able to, by, by reading the annual reports, to see exactly what changed in the asylum the next year and the years after, and nothing changed. <laughs> it was of course really terrible. Um, they they got a little more food the next year, and um, the coats that they were given, instead of being made out of blankets, were made out of wool. But they still weren't warm enough, and that was basically it. Oh, they built they built a nice house for the nurses instead of the patients. Now that that actually sounds like bad, like oh sure, do something for the nurses, not the patients. But the nurses were living pretty much in the same conditions that the patients were. And I don't think that helped them become more compassionate towards the inmates. So I don't know that that I would have chosen to spend money that way, but it wasn't crazy to do that. What kind of heat did they have in there? I mean, (laughs) for that big a place. They had um, these little like furnaces, um, uh, like a coal heater, uh, but they were like in, like two to hallway and that's like if you know what it's like in the winter imagine yourself sitting in the, your living room and there's a furnace in the hallway in your building but that's not going to reach you in your room so it mm-hmm. didn't reach any of the patients in their rooms so they froze well, they did freeze they froze and they starved to death i they they spent i think 16 cents a day feeding them and you know, you figure, well, okay, well, 16 cents then meant something different than it does now, but right. but it, it didn't mean enough. There, I found a quote from a, a, a an advocate who said, you cannot say that anyone can live on 16 cents worth of food. It's just, it's not humanly possible. So they starved. And it kills me that later someone... Um, went to was sent to prison for starving patients and mm-hmm. yet nobody at the department of public charities and correction went to jail for the decades-long fathom, famine that they caused on blackwell's island were there any doctors or nurses in particular i, I don't know if this could come up in your research but like you say the one nurse got fired for neglect but was there anybody in particular that said that stands out in your research that actually hurt deliberately would hurt these people Uh, of of the nurses yes there were cases of nurses murdering patients and nothing ever happened to them and doctors i did well let me first say like i don't mean to portray a lot of these people who worked at the institutions as bad guys um 
the I, they had to produce um, an annual report every year for each institution. And I read all of them for all mm -hmm. the years and all I, they every year, year after year, um, these people, these wardens um, were begging, begging for more money, for more help. They, mm -hmm. they were not pretending that these were wonderful places. They, they just like, the um, Reverend French said, these are horrible places and I can't run this humanely with what you give me, you know? And so they, they did the best they could. Right. Um, could some of them have done better? I, I think they very well could have, but you know, it, it's like when I, uh, every day when I read the newspaper or, or I read tweets going by, I read about something terrible being done to somebody somewhere and it's, it's endless and relentless. And I think, mm -hmm. well, what do I do? What do I do? I go to protests, you know, and I tweet, you know, and I retweet some of these and go, mm -hmm. oh, isn't it terrible? But ultimately what do I do? And we're living in terrible conditions today, like Rikers Island. And sure. people are trying to do something about Rikers Island, mm -hmm. but they're just, it's just as hard as it was then. Well, I should say it was harder then, but it's still very difficult to affect change when things mm -hmm. are so terrible. Especially when you're talking about populations where people think, well, you know, they had it coming to them. The only right. people that got any compassion were the people in the lunatic asylum, but they still were made to suffer. Now, did the inmate, did, did any of the, I'm not going to say inmates because, you know, the patients, did any of them have the um, gumption to, to, to talk to, like when the relatives came to visit, were, were they able to convey that all this was going on or it, because of their mental state, people just kind of wrote, uh, wrote it off? They did. So they, the people would complain and nothing would ever happen because, again, these were poor people. They had no political power. Right. Um, I know we're talking mostly about the lunatic asylum, but um, I said before that wealthy people um, who commit crimes never went to prison. And, and that's true today. That's true. That's true. Then. But I'll never forget coming across um, the statement from the warden of one of the prisons on Blackwell's Island. They were much more upfront in these um annual reports than than what i read now in official mm -hmm. annual reports they would say how bad it was and one of the things that they said this guy said was and i'm paraphrasing he, mm -hmm. he said you know i know wealthy people commit crimes um but i can't help noticing that you never send them to me i mean i i never get wealthy people you know sent to my prison and can i I wish I had his quote. Um, I think I might have it. I think I might have it. It's just so good. Um, oh, I can't find it. Okay, yeah, no problem. Basically, he said it just like I, I, it, this tells me that you can buy yourself, um, you can buy off anyone and not go to prison. And there was a group that still exists today, the Women's Prison Association. And what, one of the things that they would do would be to go to these courthouses and just sit and watch what happened and then write about it. And they cool. would sit. Excuse me? Cool. Yeah. And one of the things they, they, I read one of their reports where they basically said, you know, 
people, wealthy people, the well-to-do who commit crimes, if they come in at all, and it's very rare that they come in, um, they never get they never get sent to prison. They they get a fine that they can easily pay, and then they're sent home. So it's only the poor that go to prison. Makes sense. Yeah, it sounds logical, especially for that day and time. You know, that that, that day and time. But, but that that's just how it is now. Well, yeah, that's true too. I mean, when you look at the stuff that's going on in the corporate world right now and, and what people are getting away with, it's really really sad. Yeah. At this point, how long did it take you to do the research for this book? Um, I was probably all told two years, uh, maybe, maybe a little longer. There was the research I did, um, while writing the proposal, then I researched for about a year. And then while I was writing the book, I was continuing to research, um, while I wrote the book, but that's my favorite part. I could research for years and years more. It's like the trick is actually stopping (laughs) and writing it. Yeah. Did you have a hard time getting the information or, or finding it? Um, not a lot has survived. So I mm-hmm. had to get creative trying to recreate these stories. Luckily, I, I found Reverend French, mm-hmm. um, who wrote annual reports and told stories of life inside these institu- institutions. Uh, I found this another priest who was the head of the workhouse, um, the warden for the workhouse, which is a prison for a year or so. I forget how I, oh no, now I remember. Okay, so (laughs) I liked him based on what he said in the annual reports, I just liked him. He was a compassionate, educated man. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't always say that about the wardens. And so I called his hometown, I forget where it was, but it was in Massachusetts. And I called up, um, an historical society for that town. And I said, I'm researching this man. And I gave his name and I said, by any chance, do you have any material about him in, in your collection? And so they, they checked and he had written an autobiography that was never published. And so they looked through it and they said, there's a chapter about the workhouse. Would you like me to scan and send it to you? And I'm like, oh my God, yes. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Like I just got some great material of what it was like in the workhouse, the changes that he had made. And he he was, again, he was a very compassionate man and he was able to make a couple of changes just because they didn't cost any money. Like right. one change he made was and he got this idea from an inmate um when the inmates had finally served out their sentences they went home in the evening Mm -hmm. this one inmate said could you please let us go in the morning because we have no money so when we go home and you send us back in the evening we can't we have no place to go no way way to feed ourselves in the morning we could at least try to find some work and and find a place to stay and eat and Mm -hmm. so we said okay and so from then on everybody left in the morning fabulous i i you know i i would love to do what you did and really research something like that to to write a book because I'm like you, I love researching, and I and I'm like and I'm like you, and, and, I, and I have this problem with my stories too when I write them, is that I don't like to stop. You know, once yeah. I get into into the information, I keep wanting to add more, 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 more in there, and then you know, it's at some point the editor says, "Look, you know, the deadline, <laughs> yeah. deal with it." You know, yeah. And 
it's just it's just incredible to be able to do that kind of research and be that meticulous without having to hurry it through like a news reporter does. That well, that's why I said it's hard writing articles. Like I, when you write a book, you have all the time in the world. You can really just immerse yourself in a, mm -hmm. in a what at least is to you an interesting subject, and and it becomes I'm sure you're not surprised like a treasure hunt. Um, one find that I also came across that just astounded me. Uh, I talk about the fact that there were very little, very few people of color in any of these institutions. And so I was looking into that and in, there's a, a story, a very famous um, historical event that happened in New York um, around the civil war. There was a huge riot in New York um, as a result of the civil, uh, it was a civil war riot about the draft. Mm -hmm. Though maybe it was not so much about the draft because the targets for the most part of the, these riots were people of color. And one of the institutions that they attacked was the colored orphan asylum, children. They went after children. And it was a story that if you're, if you're into New York history, everyone knows about and everyone's read about. And in the course of looking into that, I came across once again an unpublished autobiography of someone who had been a child in the orphan asylum at the time that it was attacked and mm -hmm. as an adult he read about that and i wrote about it and i said i've never heard of this you know why isn't this account famous because he talks about you know them coming and attacking and them escaping because no children died the only actually the only mm -hmm. child that died in that attack was a, a little white girl who was standing outside watching and someone one of the rioters threw this huge desk out the window and crushed her and killed her she was the mm -hmm. only child that died so they they escaped out the back and they ran through the streets of new york um being hunted and 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 he it, it, it's it's a uh, it's a terrible account, but it's just, it, it, it's a page turner. Like he talks about going down one street and people saying, no, go the other way. You know, there's, there's bad people here going down mm -hmm. another street, seeing someone get lynched and just till they finally found cover. And, oh, now I know how this connects to, <laughs> I'm trying to think, how did I get this to Black Hole Sun? They, they finally were taken in and put in jail, just to keep them safe from the rioters. And then they were taken to Blackwell's Island and they spent a few months on Blackwell's Island. And he writes about hit Blackwell's Island, what he saw. So it's from a child's point of view. And he talks about how their favorite person was this warden who would like organize games and events for them. Right. And, but he said, he said the warden was very nice to us, but he was not nice to the patients and, and the inmates of Blackwell's Island. Interesting stuff. See, that that's what I would love to do is be able to get the you know in, in, into that meat and potatoes on on stories. I think that's wonderful. So yeah, like there wasn't a lot out there, but I was able to piece together the day to day life based on these annual reports, William French, and then these various autobiographies that I came across. Um, so it was it was a challenge. It was actually fun. I was like, I enjoyed the challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of these places were built on islands. Is that because they they felt it was more security to, to, to keep the inmates and the patients there? 
originally it wasn't about security. It was mm -hmm. about um, the fact that Blackwell's Island at the time was this beautiful bucolic sanctuary. Only one family lived on there. So it was mostly gardens and, and orchards and fruit trees and flowers mm -hmm. and fields. So they thought, you know, what could be better for these people to get away from the hustle and bustle and, and stress of Manhattan and the temptations of Manhattan to go to this lovely quiet island where they can rest and heal mm -hmm. and get better and then eventually be sent back. What do you think was one of the most um, atrocious things that occurred there? Well, I think I've already... <laughs> I think you've covered it pretty good. I'm just I saying. Lot, but another thing that I, <laughs> I just came across that, that surprised me um, when I was researching the workhouse, that was the prison for people convicted of relatively minor crimes. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I discovered was that for many of the years that more women were being sent to the workhouse than men. And I thought, that's very interesting. I, I, mm -hmm. like, I don't know a lot about corrections. Um, I now know a lot about the 19th century corrections. Mm -hmm. But I would say I don't think there's very many periods of time even now where you can look at any institution except for an all-women's institution and see that more women are being in prison than men. So I thought, okay, why? Why? <laughs> why are more women going to prison? And the crime that they were most the convicted of the most was a crime called disorderly conduct and disorderly conduct is a law which is very broadly worded and it's mm -hmm. still very broadly worded it basically saying if you're making any kind of fuss or mm -hmm. scene in public the police can arrest you for disorderly conduct but because it's so broadly worded in practice it meant whatever the police and courts wanted it to mean and so they used it to go after whatever group they wanted to keep in line that they had a problem sure. with and they had biases then and prejudices then as they do now. But at the time that I was writing about, um, the people that they had a problem with most were Irish immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so at the drop of the hat, those people were being picked up for disorderly conduct, which also, by the way, um, was the category that they put prostitution in. Prostitution was considered disorderly conduct um or drunkenness uh, men could walk around drunk but as long as they didn't like really cause too much trouble they were not sent to prison for but women they were women were picked up at night just for being out at night on alone and arrested so that caught my interest um right there like i noticed like for instance there are statutes um, that are equally broadly worded that apply to the crimes of white collar criminals like fraud. Fraud is very broadly worded, but it isn't used um, or abused in the same way that disorderly conduct is mm -hmm. used against um, certain groups. So I just, I was curious, like one of the, one of the things I write about at the end of the book was how um, the, the Department of Public and uh, charities and correction were ultimately divided finally into two institutions. There was the mm -hmm. Department of Charities and the Department of Correction, which means prisons and jails. Mm -hmm. And they they made a plan to fix whatever was wrong with each institution, come up with a plan. And 
one of their plans was um, they bought Rikers Island and their plan was to build a replacement workhouse and penitentiary there to make up for all the mistakes from the penitentiary and workhouse on Blackwell's Island. But their big mistake um, was that they thought somehow the problem existed in the buildings mm-hmm. <laughs> and not in the people that ran them. Right. And so they they made the same mistakes that they made um, when they built a replacement workhouse and a replacement penitentiary on Rikers Island. And so even though my book ends in 1895, mm-hmm. I, just, I just got curious. So I, I looked at all the annual reports for the Department of Correction mm-hmm. um, since the time that my book ended until... I forget where I left off, but in the 20th century. And so they always took census, um, gave a census report of the inmates in each institution. Um, How many men, how many women, how many people of color, and what their ages were, what their nationality was. And I saw that over time, the population of the penitentiary and the workhouse went from Mm -hmm. being primarily Irish to primarily African-American. So that African-Americans replaced um, the Irish as the group that they were going after and and jailing indiscriminately based on um, how they interpreted laws. So it just, Blackwell's Island, I I believe you can trace the history of mass incarceration there. Mm Very interesting. This is all fascinating. Do you know of anybody that was ever falsely um, put into the mental institution? Um, Well, I I gave a few cases in my book, but yes, it Mm -hmm. it was very easy to to commit someone to the institution. And based on this one story that I wrote about, they they tightened it up. the thing is, they would do things like they would tighten up the laws and then they wouldn't follow them. Like one of the things I saw was um, there was a big fight um, over a long period. They would commit children to the lunatic asylum and to the prison. So in the census reports each year for the penitentiary, the workhouse and the lunatic mm-hmm. asylum, there were always children. And I mean young children, like children under 10. And so... Every year there would be an uproar about that, and it took a very long time, and they finally got the age um, uh, moved up to 16, so nobody under 16 could be committed to any of these institutions. And yet I would see year after year in the census reports that they still were sending children. Um, And it was moved to 18 years old. That was another thing. Like There there were frequent outbreaks, like cholera outbreaks, um, yellow fever, um, smallpox. And the outbreaks were worse in places like Blackwell's Island just because they were crowded and, and they were not clean and, and unhygienic. And I, I wrote about this one particular cholera outbreak, which was particularly horrible. And the mortality rates on Blackwell's Island was, were higher than anywhere else in New York. And yet they continued oh. to send people there. Worse, they wouldn't let people whose sentences were up to leave. And so people were dying, even though their sentences were up. People were dying, even though they were sent there and they, they had committed some minor crime, like they're being mm-hmm. female or being Irish. Oh, yeah, that was another thing. The, the, 
the prejudice, the bias against Irish was so strong. I found a report where a doctor claimed that people, Irish, the Irish people had mm -hmm. improperly formed brains. And so if they were suffered, if they were suffering from mental illness, their prognosis wasn't good because they were Irish and had um, right. badly Jeez. formed brains. Jeez. And women were considered, oh, the, oh, that was another thing. Um, in these various um, uh, reports there, they would talk about the, the degree to which women were being restrained and the, um, the asylum. And the doctors would defend that um, by saying women were harder to manage than men. And this is the only way to, to control them. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. You know what? This hour blew right past. And this is, I can talk, I talk to hours, you know, for hours about this because this is just fascinating to me. You know, yeah. when you look back on these things, especially with the old movies that used to be out and some of the newer movies too. I mean, when you think about um, American Horror Story, when, when he wrote Asylum, I was thinking about the, the uh, Nellie Bly with that because in that particular sec, I don't know if you watch American Horror Story, but in that particular, um, scary. yeah, it's scary. But in that particular one, um, they had a reporter go undercover into an asylum, but it was more modern, you know, where, where they had record players and stuff like that in there, you know, so it wasn't the 1800s, but Well, do still. you know the story of Willowbrook? I don't. Well, in the 1970s, Geraldo Rivera, before he was the Geraldo Rivera that you know, um, <laughs> went into... Um, an asylum on Staten Island called Willowbrook. And this is, was for people suffering from mental illness. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh God, I, I, my mind is blanking on the term, but people suffering from Down syndrome. Um, and this was the institution for them. And he went undercover, but he had a cameraman with him. And, when I was a teenager, this is what I saw on my TV one night was this documentary that he did. And it was horrifying. It, it shows Geraldo walking down a hallway and there's people sitting lined up along the hallway. Some of them naked, some of them partially clothed, some in straight jackets, peeing on themselves, sitting in their own oh, feces, wow. rocking back and forth. They were it, it, it was exactly like the lunatic asylum from the 19th century, except uh, I'm writing about all uh, and all sure. female. Uh, yeah, these were all ages, and I thought, oh, when I when I researched the book about the lunatic asylum in the 19th century, I couldn't help thinking of Willowbrook, and here we were, a hundred years later from the period that I'm writing about, and it was it was just as bad. I mean, they were doing the exact same thing. And the only difference I could think about between that, the, that time, the 1970s and, and the, eight, the 19th century was they had plumbing now. That's right. That's the only thing I could think of. They've got doctors that aren't doing anything differently. That's awful. That is God. I'll have to look that up. It's got, it's got to be online somewhere. It, you know? I'm sure if you go to YouTube, it's there. Oh my gosh. I got to look that up. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And so I would much love to have you on again to talk about your other books because I know <laughs> you have you have other studies as well, you know that that you do. And I would love to have you on, you know, in the future if that's okay. Oh, sure. I would love to come back. Thank you. That would be fantastic. Anyway, I hope you have a great day. Thanks. How do people get a hold of you? 
if they go to stacyhorn.com mm-hmm. there's, there's a link where they can email me if they have any questions okay okay great well i want to thank you again for coming on i appreciate it and i hope you whatever vegetarians eat on thanksgiving <laughs> i hope you enjoy it <laughs> just you. don't just, just don't eat a whole fish with the eyeballs in there because you know <laughs> you'll alienate the whole family yeah <laughs> don't do what i did <laughs> but um, have a great holiday, and, and, and we will definitely be in touch again to get you back on at, okay. at a later date, if that works for you. Okay, good. All right, have a great time. All right, thank you so much. Have a good week. You too. All right, that was fantastic. I learned so much. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm a product of, of, of TV and, and, and old movies and stuff about that stuff. So I, I'm going to go look for that Geraldo Revere piece, too. Um Thank you guys for coming tonight. I know it's the eve of Thanksgiving and you're all busy baking apple pies and pecan pies and sometimes mincemeat pies or, or whatever it is you guys bake for your families. And I appreciate you joining me this evening. I, I know it's a tough time of year to join. Monday we're going to be back, 6.30, usual time, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And we're going to be talking about aliens on the moon. Uh, Rob, Rob, Rob Shelsky is going to be with us. And uh, that should be an interesting discussion, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. So I will see you on Monday. But I want to again. I want to thank you guys for coming. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio, and it's all because we want to get the word out. Keep getting the word out. You guys have done really good at that. Our YouTube channel has grown. And I want to keep it growing. Um, we haven't quite got. I guess we haven't quite got to the point where we have it. Excuse me, a dedicated URL yet, but we're getting there. We're getting, you know, we, we just got to keep putting people on there. So if you feel in your heart to subscribe to our to the YouTube channel, that'd be great. The only issue with that, again, because we don't have the the dedicated URL, is that it's hard to find. So the best way to find the YouTube channel and to get on the YouTube channel is to go. Either you're watching this from YouTube, right, or you go to our website at www.californiahauntsradio.com. And you, and, you, and you can subscribe from there, which means you, you click on a video on there, boom, it takes you over to YouTube. Also on that page, we have T-shirts for sale, okay? T-shirts, California Haunts Radio T-shirts. They're really cool, got a great design. You should check that out. Uh, but you will also find the archives for all the shows. We go back almost two years, and uh, I think you'll like what you see because we, not only do we bring you shows like this, we have other topics as well. Like one of my friends laughs and says, "Oh, good, it's true crime night," you know, things like that. And I, because I'm a journalist, I like to, I like to change it up, right? Because I don't like to just stay on one subject all the time. So I will change it up from time to time, and we'll have different topics other than paranormal stuff. But again, I want to thank you. Um, you see that ticker running along the bottom? That's a PayPal.me address at PayPal.me at California Haunts. That's because this is all nonprofit. My my paranormal team is nonprofit. So everything for this, the internet, the equipment, mics, equalizers, mixers, you name it, everything comes out of my pocket. And uh, it gets real tight sometimes to, to try and keep the show on the air. And I really want to keep the show on the air so I can keep bringing this good programming to you guys and the good guests. So if you could find it in your heart to donate a little bit to us at paypal.me at California Haunts, I would really appreciate it. Anyhow, I want you guys to have a great and wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and I thank you for coming. Have a good evening.